Hey, everybody. Good morning. Why don't you turn in the Bible to the book of Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 19. And if you are a guest with us, um, you need to know we're just plugging through the book of Luke. We take books of the Bible and walk through them. And uh, we have been in the book of Luke for over a year now, uh, looking to conclude around Easter. And so as you turn to Luke 19, we find ourselves uh, just continuing on in the study and colliding with verses 28 through 48. So uh, thankful that you're here. And if you need a Bible, there should be one at a row near you. Um, there's a lot of apps on your phone. We use a version called the ESV. You can look that up if you would like. Either way, um, we believe that the Bible is God's word. It's how he speaks to us. And so we are looking forward and anticipating that he's going to move in our time together. So what I want to do is I want to read verses 28 through 40, although we will go through all the way through the end of the chapter through 48 with the sermon. And then I'll pray, okay? Luke 19, verse 28, the word of God says this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones themselves would cry out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead that in this moment, you would give us a strong sense of you. Our greatest need in this moment is to be near to you. To hear from you. To see you with spiritual eyes like we've never seen you before. We need you to do surgery upon our hearts. We need you to encourage us when we are weary. We need you to give us hope when we are downcast. We need you for wisdom when we're making decisions. We need you. You're our greatest need right now. And so I pray by your mercy that you would cause me to decrease. There would be no ounce of me that wants to be impressive. But every bit of this time, Father, you would use to serve your people. And you would increase in our hearts and lives. So have your way. Humble us. Change us. Encourage us. And use us, we pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So at my house, my role in the mornings is to wake up the kids. So before school, 6.15, my role is to go in and get the kids up. So I go in. And I'm going in to wake up my six-year-old. We call him Bear. His name is Justice, Bearcat. As I go in to wake up my little bear, I go in and I turn off the fan. Because ever since we lived in downtown, we began to get used to ambulances and sirens a lot. So we learned to sleep with fans on to drown the noise out. So I turn off the fan, and I go and I sit on his side of his bed, and I put my hand on his back. And as I say, okay, I'm getting ready to say, okay, it's time to get up. I say, okay. And my son says, Wait, wait just a second. I've got to finish my dream. So I sit there, about 10 or 15 seconds, just totally quiet. And then he says, I got the treasure. 
okay, I'm ready to go, Dad. And I was like, what in the world did I just experience? You cannot shut on and off a dream like that. That's just not how it works. It's now something you're making up, you know, you're, you're controlling this. But he was convinced that was the way to make it roll. So dad stopped, got to finish the story. And okay, good, got the treasure, we're ready to roll with the day. So what captures me about that story was everything else was secondary to him being able to look in that moment and stay a part of that world and gaze at what he thought was the greatest, and that was whatever treasure was in that story of his brain. And that's what we get to do right now. We get the privilege to say, in this moment, there is nothing greater. There is nothing more special, there is nothing more beautiful than to sit and to stop and to stare and to look and to gaze and to trust and to lean into Jesus himself. He's the greatest story ever told. He's the most brilliant person we could ever behold. He is the epitome of beauty. Marvelous only attempts to describe what he is better than. He is greater than great. He is our Savior. He's Jesus, and we get to look at him today. I'm convinced with all my heart that these passages are in the Bible so that we would look and love what we see. We'd look at Jesus. He's precious to me. I love him with all my heart. He's changed me from the inside out. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced his aim today is to change you. A lot goes on in our world. This week I'm uniquely convinced of this one thing. That what we get to have right now in this moment is special. It's not special because of walls. It's not special because this building has church over it. It's special because God promises to meet wherever his people gather. And it's special because he promises that through his word, he delights to do good to you as his child. It's special because he promises to use his word to keep many of you in this very moment from shipwrecking your life in some heinous sin. He promises to use in this very moment his word and his Holy Spirit and the encouraging conversations that you might have before and after to keep you loving when you don't want to love. This is supernatural privilege that we get to have right here in this moment and it's because the living God is here with us and I got good news for you he's with you every single day this special privilege is yes special because we get to be together but he's special and when he's with you that's enough do you get it the power of the living God that dwelled in temples so that people would be struck dead if they were in his presence now lives inside of his people let that sit on you a second. We treat everyday life as so casual. But the power of the living God is inside of his people. To convict and to change. When you say it's impossible. God says don't forget. I'm with you. What a privilege. What a privilege to be together. And to open his word. And to gaze at his beauty. So today we're going to look at three things. His humble power, his compassionate tears, and his righteous anger. His humble power, his compassionate tears, and his righteous anger. Why don't we start with number one? We want to look at his humble power. Let's start in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. He's in the last week of his life. This is Sunday that he enters into Jerusalem. One week from now, on a Friday, he will die. A die a sinner's death that he did not deserve. And three days later, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, he's raised from the dead. That's a week now. And we're on the front end of it. Chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24 all outline in the book of Luke this last week. 
And we get to look at it. Get to look at it all the way up until Easter on August the 1st. But today what we see is what is known by many as the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus comes in, in triumph. He comes in being praised as King of Kings. Let's read the story to see His humble power. It says when He went on ahead in verse 28, going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was basically the climax of the story. He, it was the place where He would be crucified. And He's on His way. And when He drew near up to Bethphage and Bethany. Now, these were towns, or these were places that he would find himself lodging and then going into Jerusalem. And he would come out of Jerusalem and go to Bethany and stay there and then go back into Jerusalem all throughout this week. It was the Mount of Olives where he was found in the Garden of Gethsemane to be praying right before he is arrested to be crucified. So this is where he finds himself. He sets up camp and while he's sitting there, he tells his followers, two disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now if I'm listening to that, I was like, is that really going to work? You know, you come up to me and you say, hey, I'd like your cell phone. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Oh, the Lord has need of it. Oh, really? Well, whoever this Lord guy is, Tell him to get buzz off. It's my cell phone. I'm like, is this really going to work? The Lord has need of it. And he's just going to give a donkey? We'll see. It does work. It works. That's what it does. Verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just had just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner says, what you doing? You're taking my colt. And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they get to bring it to Jesus. And as Jesus comes, they put the cloaks down on the donkey and they set him on it. And what we are beginning to witness is the fulfilling of thousand-year-old scripture. The prophet Zechariah had foretold that this would happen. David the king had already said in Psalm 118, That this would happen. That the people of God would shout praises over the coming Messiah who would come in on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah 9.9 tells us not only the prophecy that's being fulfilled right before our eyes, but tells us how we're supposed to interpret it. Okay, so let's read Zechariah 9.9 to figure out what we're supposed to get from this. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now this is kind of Hebrew parallelism. And so the next phrase that he says is basically a repeat of the first phrase with different words. You get it? Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem. Zion, another word for Jerusalem, but forecasting a coming kingdom. And he says this, behold. This is why I felt the freedom that what we are doing right now is spending our time together beholding. Looking, because that's what he says. Look, your king, Messiah, the one who was promised to come. Over 60 prophecies made about this coming one that Jesus fulfills every single one of them. He's on the scene. Your king is coming to you. And now here's the two things we need to learn about him. One is that he is righteous and having salvation. And two is he's humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let's take the two. The two main ideas that Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling this in this moment. And this is what we as readers are supposed to take away. One is that Jesus is the coming Messiah to fulfill all the promises that were made about this coming king. Jesus is the guy. And when he comes, he will come completely righteous, no sin at all. And he will be able to bring salvation, rescue, washing of shame and guilt for the unrighteous. Because the righteous will die for the unrighteous. So, that's what we're supposed to learn. The people knew it. And when they spread the cloak over the colt and they lay it down on the ground, there is this symbol of royalty. 
He is royalty. They knew what they were doing. They knew that he was the guy. The guy to save sinners. God himself in flesh. And so what did they do? Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down from Mount of the Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began just to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They knew it. Make sure you understand what, what made them erupt in praise. They knew that when the king was on the scene, the peace they had been longing for was here. The answer for their sin problem was here. The hope in the midst of their downcast and despair and their anxiety, it was here in the flesh. He was before them. And so it causes all kinds of, yes, I've seen you do great works and you're going to be able to keep doing those. And it leads to shouting. Similarly to how some of you NC State fans felt yesterday when the Tar Heels went down. You shouted. In the first service, I literally got three shouts. I didn't get a shout the rest of the sermon, but I got shouts for NC State beat the Tar Heels. But I don't take that personally. The Tar Heels lost, and for those of you who are Tar Heel fans and you're angry at me right now, please, it's okay. The Lord will be with you. Move on. Move on. I was watching Tennessee win, and they won, and I'm really happy about that. So, and some of you don't care about that either, but it's okay. What happened in this moment was the culmination of massive anticipation. It's like the kid the night before Christmas. It was like the spouse the night before the wedding. It was like the day before you're going to move into your first home or get your first car. It was something is almost here that I've been waiting for forever. It was the anticipation of joy. And what they now are experiencing, the writing of this king, the cult story being unveiled, him going before them, it is Christmas morning. It's wedding day. You got the keys to the car or the keys to the house, you're in. It is a day of celebration, a day of thanksgiving, a day when all of your anticipatory hopes were fulfilled. Joy is here. That's why they praised him. That's why they praised him. But not everybody liked the story. Because look at what happens in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them for what? Rebuke them for praising Jesus. Why? Because a, a mere man should not receive praise. Mere men should not be worshipped. Yet he's being worshipped. Passages that are only attributed to God himself are now being shouted aloud by his followers about him. It is, it is clear they believed he was God coming to live with them. And the Pharisees didn't like it. They were like, no, no, you're just a man. When Peter tried to, when people tried to worship him later on in the scriptures in the book of Acts, he says, no, 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 don't praise me. I'm just a dude. I'm just a guy. But when Jesus gets praise, he receives it and listen to what he says. He says, I tell you this, if everybody else on the planet shuts their mouth, the rocks themselves are going to shout because my praise cannot be squelched. I am who I am. I am God himself. And I will be praised because I am who they are saying I am. I'm God. I'm Messiah. I'm the answer to your sin. I'm the righteous one when you couldn't be righteous. I'm your very hope. I'm your Savior. And so, I want to encourage you. It's not very popular. It's very popular to be religious. It's very popular even these days to say, I'm praying for you, or that... I want to give the man upstairs thanks for all that's going on. These things are actually even politically correct these days. Jesus is not politically correct. Meaning, when you say his name, he becomes divisive. I just want to encourage you. Don't stop saying his name. 
Don't be a jerk about it. But don't stop saying his name. If he is the love of your life, he's really the one who has rescued you from sin. Then give him the praise he's due. And love your neighbor by telling them their only hope is not in them being religious. It's not in being spiritual. It's not in attending a service or saying some prayer. It's not in thanking the man upstairs. It's in surrendering your life to Jesus himself, the only one who can take away your guilt and shame. So some people, they want to stop you from being forward about Jesus. They want to stop you by saying following God's ways, it's archaic. His word is archaic. It's not going to pan out. They're going to tell you to stop attributing certain things to Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's just natural. God's not a part of that. They're going to say stop praising him when you can't see what's good around you. Stop praising him when things are hard. And I tell you, don't stop. You can say, stop me if you wish, shame me as a fool if you wish, call me naive if you wish, but if I shut my mouth, I promise you this, there'll be ten more to take my place, and even the rocks themselves will cry out. Praise Him. Don't stop. Even if you're alone, even if you're not accepted, don't stop telling people about the amazing love of Jesus. He not only came to bring salvation and righteousness, but he came to show us humility. And that's what I want you to look at. Because we're looking at his humble power. His power to deliver from sin, to keep all of his promises. But he did it in a counterintuitive, upside down, topsy-turvy way. He came on a donkey. On the colt of a donkey. It's just how he works. Why did he do that? Because... Riding in on a colt is the reversal of values. It is the flipping upside down of priorities. If he wanted to show he was king, it would be chariot, it would be horses, it would be pomp and circumstance. Instead, it was coats on the ground and some palm branches on a donkey. Why? Because following Jesus is a reversal of values. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. The world calls it stupid. Jesus calls it right and good. Here's what I mean. Just walk with me through a few of these. Jesus says, it's in your weakness that you are strong. There, in weakness, you're strong. Many times it's flipped upside down. Tell about how great you are. Show your power. Show how you're better than your neighbor. Jesus says, it's in your weakness that your strength is shown to be strength. Because that's where my power shows up. So you can boast in weakness. That just seems crazy. What about when you have been hurt? When you have been hurt, all of a sudden Jesus says, that is a divine opportunity for love. When the world says it's an opportunity, all right, for revenge and bitterness and hatred. It's upside down. He says, consider, yourself, consider others better than yourself. That's not what the airplane says. Put your mask on first and then help others. And actually, that's a good thing that they do that, by the way. Because you would die like that and not be able to help anybody. And you, that would not help you either. But the idea is, consider others better than yourself. Prize boasting about God more than boasting about self. It's counterintuitive to give somebody else credit for what is going on in your life. That's good. What about wanting others to grow and succeed, even if you aren't succeeding in that very way that they're succeeding in? Being happy for others rather than jealous. And what about being known for shocking generosity? Rather than the holding on and the hoarding of things, the people of God are known for their giving away, for their generosity. It's upside down. It's the reversal of values. Jesus rides in on a colt to say, I'm turning the world upside down. Humility is the way of leadership. Humility is the way to joy. And so, I invite you. This is the first opportunity 
in this very spiritual, powerful moment when the living God is here pressing in upon your heart that you get to say, I will listen and I will absorb and Father, I will obey whatever you say and I will accept whatever you give. Or you can in this moment harden your heart. Say, I got that. I don't need this. I'm going to stay the same. One path is a path of life. The other path is a path of certain misery. So, what do we do? We gaze at His humble power. And He's pleading with us in this moment. May your mouths be filled with praise for that power. Thankful for His salvation and may you walk in humility. But the second thing we're called to gaze at is compassionate tears. Look at verse, verses 41 through 44. Verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. What I want to do is I want to start at the back end of this and work up to the tears. So, who is he crying for? Who is he crying for in this passage? He's crying for the Jews who have rejected him. That's who he's crying for. He's crying for their rejection of of him as their coming king. He looks out over Jerusalem and he knows this. The very people, many of whom are praising me right now, are going to be the ones guilty of killing me in five days. And he looks out over the city and he says, I'm filled with sorrow. I'm filled with tears. And his tears are filled because he knows the destiny of those who reject him. What is it? This story of stones being torn down and not one stone left on another. There's Really two ways to take it. One is exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans came into Jerusalem and they tore down the temple and they broke it all the way down and the only thing that was left is just a little bit of the temple mount which is actually still there today. There's this sense that that was the judgment of God upon the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. So it's either the forecasting of that story or it is just the spiritual forecasting and the certain destiny of those who reject Jesus will receive an eternal judgment. But nonetheless, that's who he's crying for. The question is, why was he crying? Why was he crying? There's many reasons why we cry. When you're walking around, you might hit your foot on a chair. That hurts so badly. It hurts. And so sometimes when you do that, you you slam your finger in a car door. I mean, just even saying that makes your shoulders kind of do this, get a little twitch going on. It hurts. And so you cry. That could be one reason. Just some type of physical pain. I've talked to many of you. I haven't seen this show. It doesn't actually entice me or look like a show that I would like to watch but many of you watch This Is Us and when I talk to anyone male, female alike who are watching This Is Us the common refrain is it makes me cry like a baby and you love watching it because it's the drama that unfolds it's the compassion it's the being near it's the it's I love the show and so you weep you cry you're entertained You're drawn into a story. Is that what's happening with Jesus? Did he stub his toe and did he see a good movie? It's not what's going on. So why is he crying? There's only two times he's crying in the scriptures. Two. One is when he lost his best friend, one of his good friends, Lazarus. 
and his friend died. And it says, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. And now again, you see Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he's crying. And he's not crying about his future destiny of death. He's crying because there's a group of people who have rejected him. And the peace that they are so wanting deep down in their heart, they are forfeiting because they are rejecting him. Make sure it lands on you. He's crying over the very people that hurt him. This is once again why it is upside down. It is confusing. It is topsy-turvy. It is not how the world would counsel. Someone hurt you, get revenge, let them have it. Jesus says, my eyes and heart are filled with tears. Because I promise you this, take it to the bank, apply it to the heart now. When someone hurts you, it is exposing that they are hurting themselves. They're broken inside. They don't know the peace of a saving Jesus. They don't know why he came. They don't know life apart from the abuse, from the addiction. They don't know life that is in Christ. Whenever someone hurts you, it is a mirror into their life that they themselves are hurting because they have in some small way or some grand way rejected Jesus. Jesus knows it. And when he sees past their inflicting pain into their heart, he sees hurt and he cries. Cries. Because rather than being consumed by bitterness, he is filled with brokenness. And he weeps. He weeps because there's no greater tragedy than when people do not know the beauty of being with God. There's no greater tragedy. There's no greater tragedy on the planet than watching someone so miserable because they have tried to make some person, some substance, some job, some bank account, some thing that they have in their hands their functional savior and it has let them down over and over again it's miserable and Jesus weeps cries because he hurts and I pause here because you need to pause we need to pause. What is our posture towards the ones who have hurt us? Jesus, in this moment, is an example for us at this time that we plead for brokenness more than bitterness. We ask him to fill us with love. Friends, the Christian's aim is not self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. The Christian's aim is not self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. That's the story of Jesus. He came. If it was self-preservation, he would have one just said, forget this suffering bit. I'm just going to crush everyone with my breath. I can just, boom, flatten it. He's got that power. Instead, he intentionally embraced death itself and the rejection of his father towards him so that sinners like you and I could be saved. It is through self-sacrifice that people see the love of Jesus. And so, oh friends, may we stare at his tears, his tears of compassion. And my prayer has been 
a revival-like work of the Spirit of God would happen in this moment, that we would be broken over our unrighteous anger and broken over our attempts to solve things the world's way and we would be filled up with His love and compassion. God has a great work to do, but let's stare at His this last piece, his righteous anger. His righteous anger. Because some of you, when I say that, when I point out the need for compassion, you're like, you don't have a clue. You don't know what hurt is to me. You don't know what they did to me, what they said to me. You don't know how long it's persisted. You don't have a clue. And in part, you're right. But I know one who does. And when his response to something greater than we could ever experience were tears of compassion, I'm going to lean on his experience rather than my own. But listen, he's not saying that all of that pain is okay or that he's indifferent to it. He's not saying that the abuse and the injustice is okay. Instead, what we now see is that there is a thing called righteous anger. There is a thing that is right about being angry when God is distorted and His justice is perverted and His people are abused. And so let's look here. As we gaze at His righteous anger, we read verses 45 through 48. And He entered the temple. This is probably the next day. We're on a Monday morning now of this seven days that lead to His death and resurrection. Verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, this is the shortest account of what the other Gospels give us, kind of a broader account of what is happening here. But what is happening here is the Jews were commanded to build a temple. And in the temple, they were commanded to build an outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. Do you know why that outer court was created? It was created so the Gentiles would have a place to hang out so that they would be able to see with their eyes the Jewish people worshiping their God who has delivered them throughout time, praising Him, and that they might be attracted to that God and they might surrender their lives to worship Him. That's what the court was created for. It was meant to be a tool to help them see genuine people worshiping a beautiful God. And so now what makes crystal clear sense is what happened where the Jewish people, rather than using this as a place to commune with the living God and display authentic worship, they were using it as a shopping mall, a market, a place of bargaining. And so not only were they perverting the intent of the place, They were also obstructing the view of those who had never seen God himself, never seen what it looks like for him to change a people. They were obstructing that view with all the selling that was happening in and around the temple. And Jesus was furious, and rightfully so. Because he says, what, in verse 46? It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. My house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does it mean? It means the people of God are meant to be characterized by prayer. And he's actually quoting a passage in Isaiah that says, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations so that the Gentiles might see, Gentiles are non-Jews, Gentiles might see the glories of God. We are meant to be known and characterized by prayer. Following God means that we are prayer-filled people. And here's what's 
beautiful and wonderful is that it's not just meant to, when he says house of prayer, it's not just this building. It's not just a building that has the word church on the outside. It's not cinder block, it's flesh. The house of God shifted from a temple structure to a people. So his people are meant to be a people of prayer. Dear friends, I just invite you to experience the power of the living God through prayer. If you go an entire day without talking to God, you are betraying your very identity as a follower of Jesus. You're hurting yourself. You're deceiving yourself as if you are the wisdom and the strength. And you are removing from yourself the very joy that can only come through intimacy with Him. Friends, there's no law in the Bible that says you better pray before you eat. There's no law. But why not capture the moment before you eat to call out to God in prayer and just use it as a marker? I get to pray before I eat. And why don't we have a lot of those markers? I get to pray before I go to bed. I get to talk to God right when I wake up because my brain's a wreck and my affections are everywhere. When things are crazy and I don't know what decision to make, I talk to God and I say, God, and I'm not always expecting some audible response, but I get the privilege of saying, God, I need you. God, I expect that in the due time, you will help me. You will shape me. God, I feel my heart really angry right now. I need you to bring some peace. God, I don't want to love right now. I need you to help me to love. God, I don't know what to do right now. I need you to give me wisdom. I'm just a really desperate mess. That's what prayers do. Prayers pray because they don't have it together. They realize they need a Savior. Oh, friends, our house our body, our lives, us as a family are meant to be characterized by prayer. But when you observe Jesus' anger, when you observe it, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm tempted to always put my anger in the category of his good anger and put everybody else's anger in the category of bad anger. I don't know if you have that temptation, but I sure do. Because what we see right now is Jesus never sins. So this anger is righteous anger. So I always feel like whatever's going on funky down in here, it's probably that kind of anger. But I want to give you three categories of anger. One, righteous anger. Righteous anger is... This person is disregarding God. They are disregarding his respect of human life. They are disregarding the designs of God. They are disregarding God himself. And because God has been obstructed or clouded, I am angry and hurting and grieved over that betrayal of God's good and beautiful design. I am angry for God. You see that? Righteous anger. Because God has been disregarded. But then there's two others. Self-righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Self-righteous anger says he or she should be more like me. Or I am good and able to do the things that I'm able to do because of me. And the fact that they can't get their act together and be like me. Is all owing to the fact that they're a loser and I'm not. There's a lot of me in there. Self-righteous anger always stands over people and looks down on them. And always thinks regularly when they're self-righteous that any goodness is because of them. Then there's unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger, yes, self-righteous anger is unrighteous anger. But what I'm speaking about in unrighteous anger is this self-protecting anger. They're inconveniencing me or my plan. So have you ever been angry at someone? Yes. This feedback's good. It's okay. Yes, you have. Every single one of us has. I have. 
But have you ever done the hard work of asking yourself, what kind of anger is going on in here? Is it the righteous kind? Is it self-righteous? Is it the unrighteous anger? And sometimes, friends, it's all the above. You're angry that injustice has happened and then you're looking down upon the person who did the injustice and then you're just flat out bothered that you're inconvenienced and you got to deal with it. It's not always in little boxes. But I invite you in this moment that when that anger is self-righteous and when that anger is unrighteous, I invite you to repent, to confess it to God, That what's going on right now is hurting me and it's hurting others and I need to turn from it and trust God. So, here's the deal. I found it a little ironic. The past two Sundays, the passages have ended in anger. (laughs) I felt that was a little weird. To be honest, you know, once again, we preach to the Bible so we don't get to pick how it rolls, you know. So the last two passages have ended with God being angry. I don't know if that bothers you or not, but I felt like it needs to be addressed. Two things to take away. One, he's not wrongly angry. And two, he's not only angry. One, he's not wrongly angry this week Larry Nasser was convicted of a crime testified to by 150 women in the US gymnastics league of great atrocities and he was sentenced to 40 at minimum to 175 years for just this issue he had other charges against him as well And I have to ask you, is it right for those women to be angry at the actions that he did? Everyone says yes. Everyone. It's not up for debate. The headlines on the day after when the judge rendered the sentence, the headlines were the judge is a hero. Why? Why do we feel like the judge is a hero for rendering justice that is due? Did the judge have the right to render that verdict? You better believe it. Guilty. And what is it in us that is okay with their anger at these actions and the judge rendering guilty? It is because hardwired in every single heart is a clarity. A clarity. That there are certain things that require angry justice. And that's right. But what we don't get is that that is just a small picture of our mutiny against God Himself. When we not only don't obey His commands, but we love everything else instead of Him or above Him or we put Him on the shelf or we use Him as a Coke machine just to give us certain things when we need it and all of a sudden He's treated as a secondary relationship. The Bible calls it sin. And friends, it is right. Just as right as you feel when I asked you, is it okay for those people who have been massively betrayed To be angry over those actions. It is right. For God to be angry. At sin against him. It's right. It's right. It's called justice. And his justice will be poured out upon all of those who have disregarded him. And not submitted their life to him. But. God. But God in His amazing love, is not only anger. Sometimes we treat Him as if He's like us, where He can only be angry and then He shifts to love. Every one of God's attributes are in Him all at one time. And at the same time, He is just judge and angry over sin. He is loving, compassionate Father who weeps over His children. 
It's not one or the other. And the invitation in this moment is for all of us to submit our thinking and our lives, our relationships, our jobs, everything that we are, and to say, I trust you. I trust you. Because you know what the answer was to his justice? Because he cannot be unjust. Instead of being unjust and just overlooking sin, he killed his greatest love. He killed his son for you and me. I don't deserve that. I don't. I don't deserve for the perfect king of glory to be killed for my messy life. I don't deserve it. And you don't either. We don't. And in his love, he said, I cannot be unjust. I must punish sin. But I cannot be unloving. I will make a way out made a way out he punished his son like he was the sinner he put all of our sin upon him even though he knew no sin himself and he crushed him killed him that should have been me and he killed him so that I could be forgiven and washed clean So that I would have hope when I face sin. So that I could love when I don't want to love. So that in all my brokenness I might be used as a tool in his hands. To show the beauty of my Savior. He died for that. And he invites you. To realize. You don't have to stare at his anger. Submit to his love. Surrender your life wholly to him. Do it by staring at his humble power. Every one of his promises came true. And although it's the reversal of values that the world gives forth, it's worth it all. Stare at his tears of compassion rather than allowing your heart to be hardened by bitterness. Because in so doing, you'll be set free. Set free to love. And stare at his righteous anger so that it keeps you from sin, but it also helps you To hate injustice and to process when your heart is being consumed by other types of anger. Hang on to every word. And stare at the Savior who loves you. Let's pray.